Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast of Roots and Hoots, brought to you by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is none other than the well-known Paul Okalik. Mr. Okalik has had a very illustrious career so far, serving the public in various capacities. He served as the very first premier of the new territory of Nunavut when it was created in 1999. He has a law degree from the University of Ottawa and a Bachelor of Arts degree from Cotton University. I understand he also has an honorary doctorate from Cotton University. He's also served as the Justice Minister and Aboriginal Affairs Minister of the Government of Nunavut when he was the Premier. He was the MLA for Callaway West for his entire time while in the Nunavut government. He is a former land claims negotiator for the Nunavut Land Claims Settlement Agreement. Mr. Okalik currently works as the Arctic representative for the World Wildlife Fund. He has two daughters, one son, and two grandchildren. He enjoys fishing and going out on the land in Nunavut. He enjoys golfing when he's down south. Welcome, Paul, to Roots and Hoots. How are you today? Good me, Gord. I'm taking it easy today, so it's not too bad. Okay, that's good. Uh, maybe we can start by uh, talking a little bit about your background in terms of where, uh, where you come from, where you grew up, and how that was like. And I believe you grew up in Tang. Uh, that's where you're from, right? Yes, I, I was born and raised in Penuktuk on the southeastern portion of Baffin Island. And uh, I was born when uh, our community was in transition, when my family was just relocating to the community. They had been on the land prior to that. So I was the first born in the community. All my siblings, older siblings, were born out in Ilungayut, uh, our, our permanent camp. Uh, before I was born. So I was born during a time when schools were being introduced to our community, the Federal Day School. And uh, there was no radio, no TV, no phone when I was uh, in my first memories. So uh, I was raised as an Inuk uh, and never spoke a word of English uh, before being uh, put into Federal Day School in the mid-60s. So you look, uh, you, you kind of transitioned from, uh, I guess, early on in your life from uh, a very traditional lifestyle to, I guess, into kind of a semi-modern world? Yeah, uh, well, when uh, I was like, I don't have a memory of it, but my first uh, two or three years were in a sod house, a hammock. Right. So there were no permanent houses in the community up to that point, there was the only structure standing were the Hudson Bay, the company, the church, the RCMP, and uh, the hospital. The regional hospital was in Tanda, where I was uh, born. So yeah. those were their only real permanent structures that were in place at the time. Has life changed much since that time uh, uh, in your community of Pangrutung? Have you noticed a lot of changes in, the, in, in your lifetime? Uh, it's still uh, very uh, inutitude focused, thank goodness. So the local radio station that's in place has been there forever, and they only speak primarily inutitude there. So that part is, we're still blessed with our language. 
but a lot of the outside world has come and uh, put in their negative influences in our community, sadly, like everywhere else. So it's been a difficult time for the community for the last little while. So it is a growing community and it has a vi- vibrant fishery in place. And we used to have good caribou, uh, but the collapse of the caribou herds has affected us like anywhere else. So it has put a strain on our ability to acquire food from our land. So it still has some time it needs to heal and move forward. I know like caribou is a, is a main source of meat for for Inuit. I mean, how has that been? Like, it must be extremely hard for Inuit not to not to have caribou. Well, it has been a real challenge because that's how I grew up. Our family trips each year was to go on our carib- annual caribou hunt about 150 kilometers southwest of my community. And uh, when I brought my own children in 2008 to hunt their first caribou with me, we only saw one. And I wasn't able to pass on my traditions to my own children at the time. I had to go elsewhere in the territory to allow my son to get his first caribou. So it has been a challenge because part of the ritual of growing up is uh, harvesting your first caribou and celebrating with the community. And that has been uh, impacted and sharing your catch with your family and and friends. So that part of our culture has taken a hit with yeah. the loss of the caribou. So it's uh, it's something that I hope will change in the future. Compared to uh, other Aboriginal groups in Canada, I think Inuit have maintained their traditional lifestyle in a good, positive way. I know that people still hunt and fish like uh, like they used to a long time ago. The outside influence, like you say, has, has come into many of our communities and kind of had a huge impact on... Uh, on community life in Aboriginal communities. And then you moved to uh, you moved to Ottawa when you were a young man. I, I'm taking that you, you came here for school or was it for work? And uh, what were, uh, how did that come about? And who were your biggest influences in your life during that time? I would say my late mother was uh, by far the strongest influence uh, she had never been to school, but she always pushed me to continue on with schooling. Her advice was, look, I'm not going to be around forever, and I need you to be successful for the future. I need you to get an education so I won't have to worry about you, so you'll, that you'll have a secure future. And that part pushed me to move forward. But I must say, the early days of schooling, impacted me heavily in moving there because what you're taught in school at the time is that as Inuit, we were lesser than the Kalunak, the white man. We were forced to think that English was better than Inutitu. They made you feel like you were less than them. So that had a real impact on me because I wanted to be a lawyer. I had seen my family suffer with the law in the early days. And I said, we need to change that. I would love to be a lawyer so I can change, help change that. But I had never seen an Inuk lawyer. All we saw were these lawyers that came into our community and they were all white. So that sort of changed after a while when I started 
taking part in the land claim negotiations. And we dealt with a lot of lawyers then. And I was encouraged by my own team members that were lawyers to pursue a career in law. But I never really accepted it until I started seeing from the other side that maybe I'm smarter than some of these Kalunat lawyers for me to pursue a career in law. So after working with a lot of them, I realized I have some potential. Let's give it a try. So I, would, I, I pursued higher education when the land claim was being completed. So I just went back to school. And thank goodness I was accepted for uh, university and then on to law school in Ottawa. So that's how I adjusted to a career in law eventually. Yes, I remember talking to you about it when uh, I worked with you at NTI. We had uh, discussed about law school, both of us going, and you know, and, and I never went, ended up going, but you did, and I, and I commend you for that. And I know it wasn't easy, you know, going through that process. And then you also uh, became involved in the Nunavut Land Claims Settlement negotiations during around that time. Talk about a little bit about your uh, your time with NTI. I think it was called Tungavik Federation of Nunavut at the time when it was first created. Talk about a little bit of your role and how difficult that part of your life was uh, in terms of negotiating with the government and dealing with them and you know how how to get this land claim settlement finalized. Yes, I was, regardless, even though I was struggling with my own challenges at the time, I had never lost an interest in taking part in community debates back home, so, and uh, studying government, and uh, so this was picked up, and I applied to be one of the researcher negotiators uh, when I was 20 years old. I was interviewed, and then fortunately, uh, they were impressed with my ability to present myself on a, on a case. I, I would say Johnny Rupalik pushed to have me hired. I was hired on as part of the team for North Baffin, and Paul Kwasa was hired for the South Baffin. We were hired on February 1st of 1985, and that's when my life took a turn for uh, the better, I must say, it opened my eyes during negotiations to what we can achieve uh, when we work together. And uh, it was uh, a real challenge. Each and every part of the agreement that we negotiated was pretty much uh, a battle. It took a while, but it was worth the battle because we achieved things that have never been replicated since. So that's how some parts of the agreement are so way ahead of their time, and and uh, it was something that uh, that was worthwhile. Yes, uh, it was a long, difficult process. I remember that the negotiators talking about it, and I don't know how long it took. How many years did it take from the beginning to end to reach that final agreement? The, our agreement was started by ITC, which is now ITK at the time. Yeah. And it included the West. That was the original proposal was first submitted in 1976. And we, the Inu Vialu, negotiated their own treaty and signed theirs in 81. Uh, and from there, in 81, we started TFN. And from 81 to 93 is when we 
discussed the particulars of our agreement and was concluded by 92 and with the, with the vote taking place in mid-92 and being ratified in July 9th, which is tomorrow of 1993. When I think about that time, uh, and I did work with you guys for a bit there, uh, who were like some of the, the guys? I mean, feel free to mention names here. This is, uh, you know, this podcast is going to be on record with the Legacy of Hope Foundation for years to come. And I know there were a lot of people that were involved in that. And uh, Can you name a few guys like Louis Pilikupsi, you know, former leaders from the uh, from the regions who were, part, who were a big part of the process and kind of uh, hardly ever mentioned now? I would say... I started off with a young lawyer named David Bennett, who had a real role in giving me the confidence to pursue uh, higher education. Uh, Fred Weiss was a real inspiration in pushing me along to learn more about higher education. Uh, Paul Kwasa, who I was hired with, was uh, my by far the closest one I worked with all along because yeah. we came from the same region and we had the same vision. Uh, Louis Tapajo, who was there for a little while, but was a major influence in, in showing me that I can go higher and better. So uh, they were from my region, but from other parts, like Louis Pelacapsi was always pushing us to get the best deal possible for our territory. And he, sadly, he's not around anymore. But uh, there were... Uh, there's Simon Taipana from Holoto from the West, who really, really pushed hard to make sure we had the best deal possible, along with Chaputana from Cam from Lake Chaputana from Cambridge Bay, who came from Oman Island originally. So there were some good soldiers on our side that had the heart to say, we can do okay, and we can go back, go, go as hard as, and far as, as we can and pursue the best deal possible for our territory and for Inuit in all of Nunavut. Yeah, Nunavut was created, uh, kind of came into existence around the time Nunavut territory came into uh, into into effect. Almost around the same time, the Nunavut final agreement. We insisted that the only deal we can sign is with Nunavut territory government. So it was put in Article 4, of the treaty that we signed with Canada. So that's why we created Nunavut, is through our treaty. Uh, otherwise, it was not possible. So we said, the only deal we'll sign with you is if Nunavut is included. So that's why it's part of Canada now. Yeah, there's so much so much happened uh, toward creating a, the creation of Nunavut. I commend you for all the work that you've done. You guys did a tremendous job. Nunavut now is, uh, what, 21 years old this time, uh, maybe tomorrow? July 9th, I think, is the is that the anniversary date? We put in the anniversary date for July 9th uh, because that's when our treaty, which established Nunavut, uh, was right. signed, even though the administrative year was the year that... Uh, administrative month of April Fools was uh, the Nunavut Territories creation, but we moved it to July 9 to make yeah. sure that the treaty that we signed is acknowledged as the birthplace of our territory. That's why July 9th is Nunavut Day. You referred to it as a treaty. Uh, you kind of consider it a modern-day treaty. Uh, 
it's called the Nunavut Land Claim Settlement Agreement. Why do you refer to it as a treaty? Because Inuit had never signed treaties, unlike our southern our brothers and sisters. It's a modern-day treaty. It's equivalent to our, our agreement. So, so we refer to it as a treaty. Uh, the agreement itself refers to articles, not sections of right. the agreement. So to replicate a treaty that has the constitutional status of any treaty. So all parts of that agreement that Inuit have rights in are afforded the constitutional protection like any other treaty Canada has signed. Uh, you work with the uh, World Wildlife Fund. How's that going? Uh, what have you been up to? It is, as I said, uh, our caribou numbers are way down. So I joined uh, World Wildlife Fund to assist them in working with communities to make sure that we bring up the numbers and support our communities and the challenge of bringing the numbers up back up to sustainable levels so that we can continue on with our beautiful practices of sharing our catches. So that's primarily my involvement with uh, the World Wildlife Fund and they have been wonderful in allowing me to, to have the freedom to work with communities to make sure that their voices are heard in having a role in protecting this by far the biggest challenge for our caribou, our tutu, which yep. uh, is not only a staple, but has always been a true supporter of our life in our territory for clothing, for uh, thread, for uh, making clothes, for all parts of the, of the animal, for food, for nurturing our diets. So yeah. I'm hopeful that with the work we're doing, we're having a difference and we'll continue on with our work and hopefully assist the caribou in recovery. Has there been a, a, an increase in the last couple of years? And you, know, you mentioned there was a decline. There was a big decline in caribou populations. Has, have you been able to turn that around recently? In my island, they're slowly recovering. We put in very challenging quotas for communities uh, to harvest. But with that, even though we're practicing that, the mining industry has had no regulation in terms of where they can develop the resources. So they're open to developing calving grounds, which are critical for the recovery of our caribou. So we've been working with communities to identify and protect those calving grounds so that these caribou are not harassed during their critical stages of during their birthing stages, which is right. critical to their yeah. recovery. So, so that's what we've been doing is working with communities to try and protect these areas from development because when they're harassed, they do, do, don't do very well on any part of the territory. So. So we need to keep working on that and uh, make sure that industry respects them. Sounds like you're continuing your good work for your people. This next question is about uh, reconciliation. Do you have a message for Canadians about reconciliation and about how we can make Canada a better country? It is uh, an ongoing challenge. Uh, as you mentioned, I used to be justice minister. I had a troubled past with my family, with the RCMP. That's still a challenge today. I'd like to see a day when we'll have our own force. 
and get rid of the RCMP in our communities and have Inuit police ourselves and remove them from the picture so that they don't continue on with their practices of pretending to be superior beings than my, my own family and fellow Inuit. So that part, I started my work with communities to, to move in that direction. And sadly, the present government and the past few governments have not followed that track. So we're stuck with the RCMP in our communities. And we've seen videos of the type of policing they do in our communities, and it's not very nice. They don't yeah. do that to their own kind, but they treat us worse than dogs in the present day in their current practices. That needs to change for us to move forward. We have a troubled history with them and we need to move forward and get rid of them. So that's part of, I would see that as a way forward. Our language is challenged with a predominant language of English and sometimes English and sometimes French in the airwaves, in the way people communicate, the other media. So our language needs to be respected by all governments. The federal government has to communicate in our language for us to remain strong, for our language to survive for future generations, to acknowledge that we're equal, that we're not some lesser being, and that, that our language needs to have the same status as any culture, because it's our homeland. We have nowhere else to go. It's where our language has the best strength of moving forward. I often refer to my language as a way forward from the past, because what I was taught was in my own language, Abinutitu. And when I say what my ancestors said to me, it's continuing on with our culture. So I hope that all governments will recognize that and allow us to freely exercise our right to speak in our language anywhere. And that part still remains outstanding. So there's a lot of challenges for our culture and for the predominant society to acknowledge that we're equal and move forward is when else probably see some light that there's hope for us to move forward with reconciliation. But at this point, I'm still waiting. Last part of our podcast of Roots and Hoots is the Hoots part. Uh, we've been talking about part of your roots and uh, and, you know, in our culture, uh, uh, there's a lot of humor. I, I like to ask our guests if they have a, a funny story to tell uh, toward to kind of end this podcast. Do you have something funny for us to tell, or do you have a story or something? You can even sing a song if you want. <laughs> As you acknowledge, uh, I've taken up golf to relieve myself of stress when I'm in the cities because it attaches me to nature, which yeah. I love, and how I grew up. So I've taken up a bit of golfing, and you must know that I'm pretty good at it. But when I was learning how to golf, uh, and I'm also a very avid hunter, and I love hunting. So when I was learning how to golf one year, in my first year of golf, golfing, I was like still trying to figure out how am I going to get it past this pond sort of thing. So, so I was golfing with my nephew, Norman, and... Uh, it was getting a little dark and I was getting tired and I I was trying to hit my ball past this pond uh, and 
first shot, it went in the water. Damn. So for my second shot, I was just frustrated and hit as hard as I could, and I didn't see a splash. Oh, good, I made it. And my nephew says, uh, I don't think you made it. What? I didn't see a splash. Well, my nephew says, I think you hit a duck. What? No way. <laughs> so we go on to the other side and start looking for my ball. And and along the shoreline, I see this poor duck upside down, kicking its feet a little bit up to the air the last few bits. Oh, no. So I... I I bring it in with my club and grab it by the legs and the head is just snapped and the eyeballs hanging out. That was a combination of my hunting skills and my my golfing skills that were coming together (laughs) at the same time. So so that was part of my most embarrassing point, but at the same time, it turned out to be pretty, pretty funny, but I felt for the poor duck. Well, Paul, you know, it's been interesting talking to you, uh, as it always is. I enjoy getting together to, with you, play some golf when, whenever we have some time. And uh, maybe I'll see you up north uh, sometime later this summer if this pandemic slows down a bit and allows us to do a bit of traveling. But I want to thank you on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, Roots and Hoots, being a guest on our show or a podcast. And uh, I wish you well in your future endeavors and thank you again very much for joining us today and all the best to you and uh, keep up the good work Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation for more podcasts like this please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca